Hej, and velkommen to the history of Denmark. Episode 21, The Brink. Hello everyone. First of all, I encourage you to check out the History of Germany podcast. The host, Travis, recently let me come on as a guest to record an episode on the Dannevirke fortification, our favorite defensive structure here on the history of Denmark. We talked at length about early Danish history, the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein and their messy legal status, the border between Denmark and Germany, and of course the Second Schleswig War in 1864, in which the Dannevirke played a major role. The episode turned out really well, and I hope you will enjoy listening to it as much as I did recording it. I believe it will be available this weekend. Last time we covered the second half of the reign of Christian IV, focusing especially on the Thirty Years' War. We ended by looking at his reign as a whole, the state Denmark was in once his 60-year reign came to an end, and his legacy throughout the ages. Today, after saying goodbye to the old king, we will transition into the reign of Frederick III, who will start off as a severely restricted monarch, and then lead Denmark in a time where its independence would hang in the balance. We left off in 1648, right at the end of the Thirty Years' War. Denmark had, in the end, lost to Sweden, and harsh terms had been applied to them. For instance, they were forced to cede strategic islands in the Baltic Sea, as well as the province of Halland, breaking the Danish stronghold on the Sound. The final task for Christian IV would be to secure his succession, as his longtime heir, his eldest son Christian, had passed away in 1647. We should remind ourselves that Denmark was an elective kingdom, where the nobility elected the king in return for him signing a royal charter, which gave them certain concessions. Depending on the balance of power between the nobility and the king, this charter could be more or less restrictive, as we have seen. The military defeats of Christian IV, combined with the sudden urgency for a new heir to be approved before the king passed away, led to the nobles of the Danish council having an unusually strong position from which to negotiate at this point. A central character in the negotiations, and in this episode in general, is Korfitz Ulfeldt, who held the office of Rigsholmester, which roughly translates to Royal Courtmaster. This was the most senior civil servant in the realm and the person in this position was usually governor of Copenhagen at the same time. Kofitz Ulfeldt had been born in 1606 as the seventh of 17 children and the son of a trusted advisor to King Christian IV. He had studied in France, learning many languages and skills which he would later put into use as a diplomat for Denmark. He was often described as a cynical and skeptical person, but he could also be elegant and he used his intellect to impress the upper-class citizens of Europe. Beneath the surface, though, he was deeply vain and extremely ambitious, as we shall see. When Ulfeldt returned to Denmark at the age of 23, he was betrothed to the king's nine-year-old daughter, Leonora Christina. The marriage agreement was a bit strange, as Korfitz was not yet that important of a noble, but it was possibly the result of his father's closeness with the king, or the impression the young man made on Christian IV. It was the strategy in general for the king to marry off his daughters to the nobles of the realm in the hopes of building a coalition of son-in-laws who would support him in the Danish council. Because of his bride-to-be's young age, 
the marriage would not be taking place anytime soon, so Corfitz Ulfeldt next focused on advancing his career. When his father died in 1630, he received a modest inheritance because of his many siblings, but he managed to secure the governorship of Bohuslän in southeastern Norway, just above the province of Helland. After serving for two years in this capacity, he had the province switched for the island of Møn, southeast of Zealand, which put him a bit closer to the center of power in Copenhagen, and also earned him some more money. He traveled to Paris in 1635 to seek treatment for what may have been syphilis, but he was never cured, and so had to use a cane for the rest of his life. Upon his return, he was married to Leonora Christina, and despite the marriage being arranged, the union was a happy one. Throughout the years, Kofitz Ulfeldt would be supported unconditionally by his wife. In the following years, he acquired some more properties in Norway and also down in Bohemia, and he was sent abroad as a diplomat, meeting first with the Holy Roman Emperor to negotiate the Danish re-entrance into the Thirty Years' War, and then in England, where he tried to settle the conflict between Charles I and the English Parliament. Finally, in 1643, he was promoted from Governor of Copenhagen to the office of Rieshovmester, as I mentioned just before. In these two positions, Kofitz Ulfeldt became very wealthy, as rumors of irregularities in his administration soon swirled. Christian IV became more and more suspicious of him, and in 1644 accused him of directing large sums of money away from the state coffers and into his own pockets. He also claimed that Ulfeldt had been weakening the navy, the control of which was tied to the governorship of Copenhagen, without his permission, and that he was in general doing as he pleased and not listening to the king. Kofitz Ulfeldt employed a tactic which would serve him well many times. He announced that he was sick and then refused to show up for work. Because the king could not afford a crisis of government during the Torstensson war with Sweden, which was going on at the time, he was forced to keep Ulfeldt on as his Rieshovmester. Christian's tactic of marrying his daughters to the powerful nobles of Denmark had backfired. When his heir died in 1647, the opposite of what he had intended took place, as all the son-in-laws, led by Kofitz Ulfeldt, banded together and formed a coalition. They wanted their wives elevated to the same level as the children the king had produced with his queen. Here you have to remember that Christian fathered children with many different women, and so many of them were only half-siblings. Another demand made by the son-in-laws was that Ulfeldt be fully restored to his previous position, after he had once again had a falling out with Christian. After submitting to the council, a meeting of the estates was arranged, with the purpose of electing Frederick to succeed his father. It was scheduled to April 1648, but King Christian IV passed away in February at the age of 70 in Rosenborg Castle, which he had ordered built 42 years before. His royal motto was Fromhed styrker rigene, which means piety strengthens the realms. After a few months of negotiations, Frederick signed his royal charter and became Frederick III of Denmark the same year. We will quickly cover it, as it was the harshest royal charter ever accepted by a Danish king, and thus marked the high point of the reign of the nobility, as this period in Danish history is called. The first issue is that of the veto power which the Danish council possessed. Previously, the council had only been allowed to veto the king on matters of war and peace, as well as the introduction of extraordinary taxes, but that power would now be expanded to several new areas. Entering and dissolving alliances with foreign powers, equipping the navy, changing import and sales taxes, and changing the administrative division of the realm would now be subject to a veto by the Danish council. 
In addition, the king's power over the council itself was reduced, as the following changes were made. Firstly, it was agreed that there should always be 23 active members. In this way, Frederick could not simply refuse to appoint new councillors when the old ones died, as had been done in the past. Secondly, new members of the council were to be appointed from a pool of candidates which the nobility had created, thus denying the king the ability to appoint nobles he knew to be loyal and obedient. Finally, Frederick would be forced to assemble the council once a year, and a special clause stated that if he disagreed with the council on a matter, and the issue was not resolved after two rounds of negotiations, the council would be free to enact whatever they desired. With all of this ground covered, the background to Kofitz Ulfeldt and his position in Danish politics, as well as the harsh royal charter signed by Frederick III, we are ready to move forward from the new king's coronation. Frederick III's first objective was to reduce the influence of the faction of nobles within the Danish council who opposed him, but he had to work within the new conditions set out in the royal charter. Kofitz Ulfeldt, meanwhile, the leader of this coalition of noblemen, who were all married to daughters of Christian IV, tried to increase his power and prestige by continuing to work as a diplomat. In February 1649, he went to the Netherlands to negotiate an alliance and a settlement on the issue of the Sound Dew. He was successful, and the two countries agreed to aid each other in case a third country attacked their territory or trading ships. The Netherlands would also pay a set yearly amount of 140,000 silver coins, in exchange for otherwise enjoying exemption from the Sound Dew. This treaty would form the basis for an important event which will take place later in this episode, nine years onwards in the story. While Ulfeldt was away, however, King Frederick had taken action. He had fired two governors on charges of harassing the peasants and managed to take away some powers from the office of Rietsholmester. Kofitz tried his old tactic of declaring himself ill, but this time it didn't work, as his colleagues in the council had no way of benefiting from supporting him in this endeavor, and instead saw it as an annoyance. In this way he isolated himself in the council, and allowed for the king to score another victory when Hannibal Sehestel, the governor of Norway, who also featured briefly in the last episode, was fired from his post, banished from the realm, and had his vast properties confiscated. Sehestel had been trying to build his own power base in Norway, and make himself financially independent, and since he was one of the brothers-in-law, and a potential threat, Frederick decided to attempt his removal, and he succeeded. Next on the list was Kofitz Ulfeldt himself. He and the king were already on bad terms, but the relationship became even more distrustful due to the so-called Dina case. Here, a woman named Dina secretly approached the king, claiming to be the lover of Kofitz Ulfeldt, and informing him that Ulfeldt, along with his wife, was plotting to murder him with poison. Frederick was alarmed and heightened the security at his court. The case then quickly became complicated, as Dina had Corfitz notified of a murder plot against him. Ulfeldt barricaded himself in his house, and for two months a stalemate took place in the city of Copenhagen. Corfitz eventually sought out the king to settle the matter. He was cleared of all charges, and Dina was executed, but the whole affair created a mood of paranoia in the court. What finally brought the conflict to a head was the investigation of Kofitz Ulfeldt's possible corruption and self-enrichment, which had been going on all this time. The king put forth the charges two days after the end of the Dina case, and aimed at finally bringing down Ulfeldt like he had Sehestel and the other brothers-in-law. The Rieshormister, however, fled with his family in the night, boarding a ship to the Netherlands and then joining the Swedish court. 
Frederick had now purged the hostile faction in the Danish council, and could act more freely despite the restrictive royal charter, but he would soon be facing a great challenge. As you may have guessed, War with Sweden is on the horizon. The so-called Second Northern War would break out in 1655 and last until 1660. But before we dive into it, we need to explore the diplomatic developments concerning both Denmark and Sweden between 1651, when Frederick III began his showdown with Kofitz Ulfeldt, and 1655. Let us take Denmark first. Because of the treaty which had been negotiated with the Netherlands, Denmark was drawn into the conflict between the Dutch Republic and the Commonwealth of England. The two nations quarreled over trade in the colonies in the New World, Spain and the English Channel, and mutual attacks on each other's trade vessels eventually escalated into the First Anglo-Dutch War in 1652. Denmark did not provide direct military assistance to the Netherlands, but it did seize all English ships docked in the harbour of Copenhagen. England responded by doing the same to Danish and Norwegian ships on the Thames River. After these initial actions, Denmark was in an awkward position, and sought to exit the conflict by dissolving the trade treaty with the Netherlands. Because the Dutch had not gotten that much out of the treaty, they agreed to suspend it in 1653, but the relationship with the Danes was still fairly good. After the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War the year after, Denmark made a free trade agreement with England to get the relationship going again. Now for Sweden. After the death of Gustavus Adolphus in 1632, which we covered last time, the throne passed to his young daughter, Christina. She reached adulthood and was crowned in the wake of the Torstensson War, and from then on ruled peacefully. During her reign, Sweden notably created a colony on the Delaware River, consisting of several settlements. Queen Christina of Sweden was a learned woman, having been educated in classical literature, eight different languages, philosophy, religion, mathematics, and much more. She attracted many intellectuals to Sweden, such as the famous philosopher René Descartes, who served briefly as her personal tutor. However, what we are most interested in are her views on religion and marriage. Christina disliked the idea of marriage, and instead preferred celibacy, which was of course not ideal when she was expected to provide an heir to the Swedish kingdom. From an early age she had been engaged to her cousin, Charles, but in 1649 she announced her intention not to marry, and instead make Charles her heir. The nobility was disgruntled, but her proposal was otherwise accepted without problems, so she abdicated the throne in June 1654 and converted to Catholicism, and moved to Rome at the age of 28 to pursue her intellectual career in southern Europe. Her cousin was then crowned as King Charles X Gustav, and would pursue a far more aggressive foreign policy, as the military man he was. He basically had two options on this front. He could try to further weaken Denmark, which was already surrounded on all sides by Swedish possessions, or he could make another incursion into Poland, just like Gustavus Adolphus had done decades before. He ended up choosing the latter option, due to the eruption of the Russo-Polish War in 1654. In this conflict, Russia would invade and occupy the eastern part of the large Polish realm, and because of this, Charles X felt that it was urgent that he do the same to the western part, in order to counterbalance Russia. The Swedes bore down on Warsaw and Krakow in 1655, and quickly occupied the western part of Poland, forcing Lithuania to become a Swedish fiefdom. This lightning offensive is known to history as the Swedish Deluge. The Second Northern War at this point was mainly a conflict between Sweden and Russia, concerning the Polish realm, 
with both sides having their own allies. King Frederick III of Denmark began to take an interest in the conflict and saw an opportunity to regain some of what had been lost in the Treaty of Bremsebro after the Thirty Years' War, but he would first need the approval of his council before he could declare war. He negotiated with the council throughout 1656 and was further egged on to join the war by Russia and the Holy Roman Empire, both of which suggested alliances. In the same year, the Swedes spent their time putting down a Catholic revolt in Poland, which had taken place as a reaction against the occupation. When the winter of 1656-57 had passed, Frederick only needed to get the funding in order and he would be ready to enter the war. This finally happened, and in a solemn ceremony on the 1st of June 1657, war was declared. The first attack came in the Swedish-controlled Archbishopric of Verden, a realm which Frederick himself had controlled as Prince-Bishop decades before. The Danes overran the country, which was isolated from the rest of the Swedish possessions in Germany, but they could not hold out against the enemy counterattack, which came soon after. Charles Gustav of Sweden decided that he had had enough of the fighting in Poland, and instead turned his attention towards knocking Denmark out of the war, so he wouldn't have to worry about his flank. He therefore started the march into the Duchy of Holstein from his position in Poland, and then split off a part of his force to go attack Verden in the counterattack I just mentioned before. He then personally struck north into Schleswig and Jutland with the rest of his army. The King of Sweden met little resistance and even picked up an ally along the way. As you may recall, the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein have been divided into several smaller duchies at this point, with the King of Denmark serving as duke in some parts as well. The part of Holstein, which was owned by the House of Gotthorp, was ruled by Charles Gustav's father-in-law, and he therefore joined him against Denmark. The Swedes quickly advanced up through Jutland in the late summer and fall of 1657, with the Danes proving once again that they were incapable of defending the peninsula against a superior invasion force. Charles Gustav only needed to starve off the defenders of the fortress of Frederiksøde, located at the point closest between Jutland and the island of Funen. Denmark had tried to stop his advance through attacks by the Poles, the Germans and their new ally Brandenburg, but their efforts had failed to stop the disciplined and professional Swedish army. The fortress fell at the end of October, and with winter setting in and Jutland subdued, Charles Gustav pondered his next move. He knew that he had to beat Denmark fast so that he could get back to Poland before he lost everything he had gained there, but he needed to advance from his current position, and there seemed to be no way to do so. That is, until winter set in. The winter of 1657 was extremely cold, and this would have major consequences for the war and the history of Denmark. The straits between the Danish Isles froze, and the Dano-Norwegian fleet was trapped in the harbour of Copenhagen. In a daring maneuver, Charles Gustav X of Sweden decided at the end of January to make the famous March Across the Belts. He took 7,000 of his best troops and crossed over the ice from Jutland to Funen, which he proceeded to conquer in just a few days. He then went southeast and crossed the ice once more, where the straits are the shortest. If you're having trouble following the geography here, I've put up a rudimentary map of the path of the Swedish army in 1657 and 1658, so that you can see what I'm talking about. Anyway, the King of Sweden was now on Lolland, one of the two large islands south of Zealand, and he quickly continued north, now fast approaching Copenhagen. The Danes were completely floored by this attack 
and King Frederick scrambled to send diplomats to negotiate a peace treaty with the invaders. The two parties met in Roskilde, around 30 kilometers west of the capital, to see if the total subjugation of Denmark could be avoided. Acting as one of the main negotiators for the King of Sweden was Kofitz Ulfeldt, who had by now become a close confidant of Charles Gustav. Ulfeldt had been lobbying for the king to attack Denmark for years, so that he could regain his confiscated property and had gone so far as to partly finance the campaign, as well as personally accompanying the Swedish army on their march. The initial Swedish terms of the infamous Treaty of Roskilde were absolutely crushing for Denmark. Not only would the Treaty of Bremsebro be confirmed, but in terms of territory, the Danes would also be required to hand over Scania, Halland, Blekinge, the island of Bornholm, as well as the Norwegian provinces of Bohuslän and Trondheim. In addition to this, Denmark would have to pay a million silver coins in war reparations, hand over 12 outfitted warships, forbid ships hostile to Sweden from sailing in Danish waters, enter into an alliance with Sweden, and refrain from making alliances with the enemies of Sweden. And finally, return all property to Kofitz Ulfeldt. The final terms, which were agreed upon on the 26th of February 1658, were a bit different, but still very unfavorable to the Danes. The only thing that had changed was that the war reparations and warships were replaced by 2,000 cavalry, which were to be handed over instead, and Denmark also had to supply the Swedish army until the 2nd of May that year, until which they were allowed to stay in the country. The negotiations about an alliance between Denmark and Sweden continued through the spring and summer of 1658, even after the occupying forces left Zealand in May. The Swedish king's father-in-law, one of the dukes, capitalized on the state of affairs to have his part of the Duchy of Holstein made independent from Denmark, after which he entered into an alliance with Sweden. King Frederick III seemed to have to consign himself to being a puppet of the Swedes, but fate would have it another way. The negotiations between the two countries broke down in August, as Denmark had not supplied the Swedes as agreed upon, and because the 2,000 cavalry that had been handed over deserted back to the Danes. Charles Gustav of Sweden decided to once and for all finish off Little Brother, as he had nicknamed Denmark. His fleet set out from Kiel in Germany and resumed the occupation of Zealand with an army 10,000 strong. The Danish army fortified itself in Copenhagen, which was at this point the only remaining holdout for the King of Denmark. Kronborg Castle in the north had also fallen, so everything now depended on the capital, which was about to endure a month's long siege. Denmark was on the brink of collapse, but all hope was not lost. In October, a Dutch fleet broke through the Swedish naval blockade of the Sound and came to the aid of Copenhagen, bolstering the number of the defenders by 2,000. The Netherlands had, on the basis of the original treaty signed nine years before, decided to help Denmark in its hour of need, due to fear of the power Sweden would acquire if it won the war. In addition, the Swedes were losing on other fronts around this time. They were kicked out of Trondheim province in Norway, and the island of Bornholm freed itself by killing the Swedish commander there and routing the troops. In Jutland, German and Polish troops retook the fortress of Frederiksøde and eventually liberated the entire peninsula, while in Scania and southern Zealand, a pro-Danish guerrilla group called the Snaphaner made life miserable for the Swedes. Faced with these setbacks, King Charles Gustav of Sweden decided, in the daring manner which seems to be typical of him, 
to try and win a decisive battle at Copenhagen to finally win the war. Inside the city, morale was better than it had been back in the beginning of fall, but conditions were still bad. The besiegers had cut the external water supply, and so the citizens of Copenhagen had to rely on water pumps and wells inside the city to meet their needs. The city had around 29,000 inhabitants at this point, and the defenders numbered roughly 10,000, equal in size to the Swedish force on the other side of the ramparts. However, only 3,000 were professional soldiers, 3,500 were militiamen, and 2,000 were Dutch sailors, as we mentioned earlier. The rest were raw recruits. Students, craftsmen, and merchants all signed up to defend their city. One big advantage the defenders had, though, was their spy network, which gave them information about the Swedish plans at regular intervals. This meant that when Charles Gustav decided to storm the city in the beginning of February, the people inside knew it was coming. So it happened that on the night between the 10th and 11th of February 1659, the Swedish army launched the assault on Copenhagen, the outcome of which would determine whether Denmark was to remain independent or effectively become a Swedish puppet state. The main attack came at Christianshavn, the fortified merchant city constructed by Christian IV. The defenders had acquired a big advantage in that they knew from a previous attack, where they had captured a pontoon bridge, how long these bridges were, and so they had widened the moats in front of the ramparts. This made it difficult for the Swedes to traverse the moats, and combined with their tight formations, it made them easy targets for the Danish shooters. The first attack at Christianshavn was beaten back, but several attacks followed throughout the night, and the Swedes almost broke through in the eastern part of the city, but an ambush forced them to withdraw. Finally, at 5 in the morning, the Swedish army gave up and retreated. They had taken 1,700 casualties, at least 600 of which were killed, although many bodies probably disappeared in the moats. The defenders had only suffered between 15 and 30 killed and wounded, so the result was a big victory for Denmark, which came at a point when a victory was sorely needed. The assault on Copenhagen became a turning point in the war. Although the siege continued, the defenders were energized and managed to hold out until July when the Dutch fleet broke through once more and delivered supplies to the now starving inhabitants. Meanwhile, peace negotiations had been initiated in The Hague by France, England and the Netherlands, who wanted to use the Treaty of Roskilde as the basis for an agreement, although without the clause that barred the sound from anti-Swedish ships. Both Denmark and Sweden initially refused The Hague negotiations, but after direct talks between them failed, Frederick III relented and agreed to the terms. Because Charles Gustav would still not come to the negotiating table, the Hague parties decided to use force against him. Throughout 1659, the Netherlands, Denmark and Austria banded together and moved the fighting to Funen, which was still under Swedish control, and worked towards dislodging the occupying army. It took almost a whole year, but on the 14th of November, the Allied forces won a decisive victory at Nyborg killing and capturing several thousand Swedes. This final battle of the war so damaged the Swedish army that it was now unable to keep up the occupation, and Carl Gustav sailed home to Sweden with the rest of his forces. Peace would only come in the spring of 1660, after the King of Sweden died of a cold which developed into pneumonia at the age of 37. Finally, the Swedes came to the negotiating table and accepted the modified Treaty of Roskilde, which let Denmark have Trondheim and Bornholm but ceded the provinces of Scania, Halland, Blekinge and Bohuslän. This was crushing for Denmark. Malmö, located in Scania, was the second largest city in the realm at this time, and vital to controlling the sound. 
the Treaty of Roskilde, which ended the Second Northern War, established the borders between Denmark, Sweden and Norway, which exist to this day, and for that reason is very important to the history of Denmark. Another detail to note is that the Gottorps of Holstein managed to gain independence for the part of their domains located in Holstein. This would continue to cause problems for 100 years to come, especially for King Christian V and his son, Frederick IV, but the whole affair will eventually be settled in 1773. For now though, Denmark had come back from the brink of destruction. One final thing to cover is the fate of Kolfitz Ulfeldt and his wife. He had managed to secure himself some lands in the now Swedish province of Scania, but he was annoyed by the fact that he had not been made the governor of the province. This ungratefulness led to him being arrested by the Swedish king and found guilty of treason, the accusation being that he had been secretly helping the Danes. He would be pardoned for the crime, but he had in the meantime fled to Denmark with his wife, where they were arrested by the authorities and incarcerated at Hammershus castle on the island of Bornholm. After a period of brutal imprisonment, Ulfeldt reached a settlement with King Frederick and had to kneel before him in submission, pledging his loyalty in exchange for better accommodations. However, he continued to conspire against the king, having now grown delusional and paranoid from both illness and old age, and he once again fled Denmark. He went through the Netherlands and eventually ended up in Switzerland, where he lived out his days in hiding, as he was a wanted man across the whole of Europe. He sent his children away, and they were spread out across the continent, where they pursued various careers. Korfitz died in a drowning accident when he fled due to a rumor that Danish agents were catching up to him, which turned out not to be the case. Today he is remembered as the greatest traitor in the history of Denmark due to him going over to the Swedes and helping them financially, and he is probably comparable to Benedict Arnold in American history. In fact, outside his old residence in Copenhagen, a pillar of shame was erected so that passersby could spit on him and his memory. As for his wife, Leonora Christina, the daughter of Christian IV, she was imprisoned in the Blue Tower of the Copenhagen Castle for 22 years. She had pleaded her ignorance of her husband's conspiracies, but that wasn't really the issue. The reason for her imprisonment was that she and Queen Sophia, the wife of Frederick III, hated each other. This is also why she was still in prison many years after her half-brother had died. While in the Blue Tower, Leonora Christina wrote her famous autobiography, Jamos Minne, which translates literally to A Memory of Lament, and this work is probably the main reason she is still known today. It was only discovered in the 1800s, but is today recognized as the finest 17th century Danish prose work. When Queen Mother Sophia finally died in 1685, Leonora Christina was released and lived out the last 13 years of her life in a monastery. That was all for this episode. Today we have covered Frederick III's feud with his brothers-in-law, as well as the Second Northern War, with important people such as Kofitz Ulfeldt and Charles Gustav of Sweden, and important events like the march across the belts and the assault on Copenhagen. Next time we will cover the last 10 years of the reign of Frederick III, a period of great change, as Denmark becomes the first European nation to embrace absolute monarchy. Before I go, I just want to address the obvious. This episode was way overdue. The reason for this is simple. I am still doing the history of Denmark as a hobby, and that is how I intend to keep it. Unlike many other podcasters, I don't want my show to become another job, but this also means that I have to down-prioritize the podcast at times. Since I released episode 20, I have had many other things to do, mainly work, 
and so it was difficult for me to find the time to make this episode. I'm glad I finally got it out, and hope that I can deliver the next one to you sooner. But at this point, I know better than to make any promises. Anyway, I hope you will stick with me despite the gap between episodes, and tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.